I'm Alicia Michalisic Kurtz, and welcome to Real Talk, a place where doctors and other healthcare professionals share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. On today's episode, we'll hear a story from Anna Heilig Adams, a physician's assistant from California, currently working in Kuwait with the U.S. Department of State. Anna recorded her story at a live Real Talk session in Southern California. In our last episode, we talked about what it's like when the people we love get sick, when we're afraid we're going to lose them, or at least the person we know them to be. But while most of us have at least thought about what it would be like to have our loved one be the patient in a life-or-death situation, I don't know that we spend as much time thinking about what it would be like if we were the patient. What would our loved ones think or feel if we got sick? Who would translate the medicine for them or reassure them when things get a little hairy? How would their perspective of our illness differ from ours? Working in medicine, we're pretty deep in the science and pathophysiology of human disease. We talk shop and skip the beating around the bush to get to the meat of the conversation. The numbers, the test results, the imaging, the language we speak and understand that our patients and family members and non-medical friends do not. We naturally minimize severity of diseases most of the time because to us, when we talk about sick versus not sick, we mean sick, as in critically ill and dying versus not. While the threshold for what is scary or concerning for our families is probably a lot lower than the threshold we establish for ourselves. What would it take for us to understand that perspective? To realize the value of our own lives in the eyes and hearts of the people that love us most? In Anna's story, we'll hear about a time when Anna got really sick. But since she told her story to a room full of doctors and PAs, she doesn't really outright say what she had. So, spoiler alert, Anna had something called ovarian torsion. It's when your ovary twists around, which causes the artery that feeds blood and oxygen to that ovary to be clamped off. Besides being super duper painful, this leads to that ovary dying. And dead organs are a disaster for the body, they need to be surgically removed. It's absolutely an emergency, and depending on how badly affected that blood vessel gets, it can have some pretty gnarly complications. Years prior to this experience, Anna was married to a super nice guy named Sean, who was unfortunately diagnosed with a brain tumor that ultimately took his life while they were both still in their 20s. Needless to say, Anna is intimately familiar with what it's like having the person that you love be on the brink of death. To feel that fear, that despair, that empty pit in your stomach of not knowing if you'll be able to see or talk to them again. But she didn't know what it would be like for her family when the patient was her. This is Anna's story. So in order to tell you my story, I need to kind of tell you my background because it's different and why I got into medicine. This is my husband, my first husband, Sean, and he passed from a long battle with a pretty rare form of brain cancer about four days after my 27th birthday. So fast forward, December 23rd, 2017, we've been together about eight and a half years at this point. 
And we spend every holiday out in Palm Desert near La Quinta. And I wake up six in the morning. It's pretty severe abdominal pain. Wow, this really hurts. Gotta be just gas. Cause I'm an ER provider, right? Like, not a big deal, it's just gas. So I go to the bathroom. Wow, it's getting worse. That didn't help. <laughs> and I'm standing there in the bathroom and I feel the peristalsis start, they're going to the wrong way. And I'm like, oh boy, and start throwing up. I'm like, okay, I'll take a Zofran. So I go out, take a Zofran. Nope, getting worse. Go back, throw up again. Doubled over, right flank pain. How bad could this be? Maybe I'm having a kidney stone. Maybe, who knows what's happening? It'll be fine, it's just gas. About 6.40 in the morning, I'm there, laying doubled over on the bedroom floor, and my husband wakes up, and he looks at me and says, do we need to go to the hospital? And everything inside me is screaming, no, God, no. <laughs> but what came out was, yes. And I couldn't even believe it. So he puts me in the car, starts driving. Now we're in La Quinta. I tell him, just go to Eisenhower. God, just go to Eisenhower, nowhere else. <laughs> and I am barely coherent. Like, I've never experienced anything like this, and I take pain pretty well. And I'm doubled over, Lama's breathing, and he must have seen a sign for some random little minute clinic or something. Oh, I see this little hospital, I should go there, it's closer. No! Keep driving! Just keep driving! Go to Eisenhower, don't stop! <laughs> so we get there, 7 a.m., he just drops me off so we can park the car, and I'm limping, kind of like huddled over, waddling into the hospital, like, God, why can't I stand up? This is the worst gas ever. Still convinced. Start vomiting and triage, sitting in the ER. They start the workup, get everything going. They're all convinced it's an appy. CT scan back, no appy. No kidney stone, nothing. Okay, wait on the ultrasound. 11 a.m., go to ultrasound. And I'm sitting there in ultrasound. And when she turned on the Doppler and the sound, or lack thereof, I knew. And I said, to, I remember saying to the ultrasound tech, because, you know, I, I feel bad. She can't tell me anything. I'm not crazy, right? It's not just gas, right? And she, she laughed. No, you're not crazy. Okay. Thank God. <laughs> Whew, thought I was losing it. I was like, wow, this is the worst gas. What am I doing here? Um, and then it all kind of went as planned. I'm just dealing. The family who we'd kept away all shows up to the hospital. My brother-in-law is joking. I remember when my husband was sick, I called the hospital one day and he answered the phone because I called his room, City Morgue. And I wanted to kill him for a week. I, I chased him around <laughs> the house. But that's how we are, right? So for my husband, who'd never been, my current husband, who'd never been through this, I was thankful that he had them, right? I've kept it good. I'm staying as stoic as possible. It's all fine. Just get it out. It's no big deal. It'll be fine. And they're all there to support him. So about... 12, I'm in pre-op, 
and the OB comes barreling into the room. And immediately, I loved her. (laughs) I got lucky. I got really lucky. And I knew it. She, despite the craziness around me, because there was free fluid in my pelvis and everybody was rushing me to get me into the operating room, she kicked everyone out and took the time. Sat down and took the time to do a full exam. And I immediately was like, okay, I'm in good hands. This is fine. I don't care. She's like, I'm going to try and save your ovary. I don't care. Just take both of them. Both of them. I don't care. Just get it out of me. I don't need it. I had a hysterectomy two years ago. Just get them out. I'm glad she didn't listen. But <laughs> um, so I go through all that. This is me <laughs> in pre-op. Didn't, I don't even know when my husband took this picture. But that's. I found this picture about a month later on his phone, and I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) But that's how I felt. So, yeah. So, (laughs) I'm talking to her before surgery, and I say, you know, this is what, you know what I do. I don't sit at a desk all day. How long? How long do I have to stay off work? Four to six weeks. You can't go back. You know, this is a big surgery. You've got to recuperate. You can't be lifting patients, intubating, whatever. Okay, fine. So 4 p.m., I wake up, and she's, I remember her face over me. That was the first face I remember on post-op. And first words to me are, remember how I said four to six weeks? Yeah. Minimum of eight. Okay, why? Well, you know that artery that feeds that ovary? Yeah. Well, it was disintegrated and hemorrhaging, and... It took a lot of work. This should have taken me about 30 minutes. It took about two hours. Luckily, laparoscopically, I got lucky. Um, Because I don't mind showing pictures. This is my left ovary. It's all pretty and perfect and white. And this giant purple penis-looking thing (laughs) is my right ovary after she had evacuated all the blood. So I get through it, and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm alive, you know, I'm alive, it's done, I just need to recuperate, and my husband's doing good, at the time he was just my partner, but he's handling it well, the family's all hilarious, no biggie, right? Thank God he didn't have to go through what I did. Fast forward six months, finally get cleared to go back to yoga from physical therapy, I'm sitting with a, my yoga instructor, who's a friend of ours. And she wants to hear what happened so she can help me process through this and move on. And I'm telling her, and she says to me, because she had run into my partner at the time, now my husband, who she says, you know, I talked to Fen, and he said you almost died. And it kind of hit me. Like, it took me back. I realized that's what he felt. Yeah, that was kind of the reality, right? I'm hemorrhaging blood. I've never been anemic in my life, so my normal hemoglobin levels to the doctors there, not so normal. (laughs) Um, And I fell apart. Like, even thinking about it now, just the fact that he had to live that. He had to go through what I had gone through. Totally different scenario, but the fear and living with it and covering it up to try and be strong for me. And that, that was my big, like, full circle moment. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, why I talk about this is that I approach medicine from a very different standpoint. I always look at it as provider and caregiver. Um, it was hard. It's really hard. And I, when I approach every case, I think back and I'm always thinking about, you know, do, do they actually hear me? Are they getting what I'm saying? And I actually frequently say to them, hey, you can ask me again. If you don't get it, please ask me. And I'll take the time to do that because it matters. Because patients don't hear it, even if they mean to. They're dealing with stressful situations. It may be something that's super easy to us, but they're scared, right? You never really know, but I approach everybody from all those different aspects now. I, you know, I have the benefit of knowing what a torsed ovary feels like now. So when everybody's like, oh, we got a test for a torsed ovary, I'm like, she's not torsed. <laughs> she's fine. Trust me, she's fine. <laughs> um, so we just got married, by the way. <laughs> Finally, after 11 years. Um, he's a really good man. I was like, not going to lose him <laughs> after everything I've been through. And the family loves him, and we're pretty good, so... <laughs> When Anna's ovary torsed, it caused an erosion of her ovarian artery, which then bled out into her pelvis, causing her to literally almost bleed to death. While Anna was asleep in the operating room, her family and now husband Finn were waiting in a seemingly endless purgatory, desperately hoping that she would survive. Then when Anna woke up, her medical brain heard... Hey, there was a complication. You'll need more time to recover, but it's all good. Whereas Finn was still reeling from an afternoon spent unsure if Anna would live. It took Anna's yoga teacher telling her how Finn told the story of her surgery for Anna to realize how that day had crawled by for Finn. How the fear and uncertainty and confusion that she had experienced with her late husband Steve was the same fear and uncertainty and confusion that Finn was feeling for her. Without having lost her first husband to brain cancer, Anna never would have appreciated Finn's experience or realized the level of fear that comes with having somebody you love get sick. Have you ever had an experience where you or someone you care about was a patient in the ER or the hospital? What was it like? Did you feel like the doctors and the rest of the team really appreciated your concerns? Do you think as a healthcare professional that you ever minimize the concerns of others? And if so, how can we better acknowledge and reassure our patients without belittling their non-medical perspectives? Thank you to Anna Heilig-Adams for sharing her story with us, to the team at Vituity for their support of this podcast, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Head to vituity.com slash realtalk for more information or email us at realtalk at V-I-T-U-I-T-Y dot com.